This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... This is obviously a situation where there's tremendous pressure from the international community on the Egyptian government to release him. That's Marty Flax speaking about the case of Egyptian dissident Abdel Fattah. Details coming up. We'll also have an update on COP27 talks. And Zimbabwe seeks to re-enter the British Commonwealth. These stories and more on African News Tonight. The jailing of a dissident in Cairo seems to be overshadowing the UN Climate Summit COP27 currently being hosted by Egypt. Abdel Fattah, a veteran pro-democracy and rights campaigner, is serving a five-year prison sentence in Egypt for spreading false news by sharing a Facebook post about police brutality. The U.S. has been in high-level communication with Egypt's government, expressing deep concern and a desire to see Abdel Fattah freed. For more on the case of the jail dissident and its international implications, I talked to Marty Flax, formerly Director of African Affairs at the National Security Council and currently Director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. That's right, absolutely. So I think it's so important that President Biden, that Prime Minister Sunak, uh, as you said, President Macron, Chancellor Schultz all raised this case with Egyptian President al-Sisi last week while they were in Egypt for the COP. This is obviously the most high-profile case of a political detainee in Egypt right now. Um, his health condition has deteriorated significantly. He was already on a essentially a hunger strike, and then a few days ago stopped drinking water as the cops started. He was then, we understand, taken to hospital to get some care. And, and as of this morning, we understand he is drinking water again, which is good to hear that, you know, he is still alive. However, there's still grave concerns about his health and his situation. Uh, even though he communicated with his family in recent days, his lawyer has not been able to visit him in recent days. The UK consulate has not been able to do a consular visit. So there's still quite immediate concerns about his health and well-being. But more broadly, this is obviously a situation where there's tremendous pressure from the international community on the Egyptian government to release him. Um, and it has become the focal point of the entire COP, which is, of course, the last thing that the Egyptian government wants as it's trying to host this international event and trying to you know, demonstrate its critical role in the international community. Instead, the story has become the detention of this political activist. And rights groups are saying there are 60,000 political detainees incarcerated in the country, many of them in brutal conditions and overcrowded cells, accusations which Cairo rejects. Well, that's right. His case is symbolic of a much broader problem. Egypt uses the uh, detention of political activists and, frankly, everyday people who might have uh, spoken out, gone to a protest, posted something online as a strategy to contain dissent. So there are estimates, as you said, of 20,000 to 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt. According to some estimates, that could be as many as six times the number of political prisoners in China. Uh, So it's really remarkable how widespread this practice is in Egypt. And 
so it's something that this case has really brought to the attention of the international community and, and global leaders. Um, it's an important case in and of itself, but it's also important as a window into what's happening more broadly in Egypt in terms of civil society space. So as far as CSIS, uh, uh, your organization uh, and you, for instance, uh, bringing innovative thinking and a multidisciplinary approach to tackle pressing global human rights challenges and better integrate human rights across foreign policy priorities. How would one deal with a situation like in Egypt? Well, it's a great question because there's often a perception that human rights concerns are run in contrast to or run up against other U.S. foreign policy interests, including national security interests. And I think we try to make the case that actually respect, promoting respect for human rights will help make our national security agenda and our national security itself stronger. There's been an argument for many years in Washington about our foreign assistance to Egypt, whether how much of that we should condition on human rights. And there's often an argument by those who want to push for the closer bilateral cooperation that speaking out about human rights will undermine those other national security interests. But in a case like Egypt, where those interests are, you know, are things like countering terrorism, uh, protecting the Suez Canal, the, the situation in Gaza. You know, Egypt has their own independent national interest in those situations. They're not going to back off from those issues, whether or not the United States is either giving them foreign assistance or speaking out about human rights. And lastly, Marty, uh, climate change and human rights, are they both connected? Climate change affects human rights? Absolutely. And I think that, that human rights activists the last few weeks in Egypt have really done an excellent job in, in drawing the connection uh, between attacks on human rights defenders and the broader climate crisis. So in Egypt, for example, it's not just political opponents who are under attack. It's also climate activists, climate justice activists, and in fact, all of civil society that's unable to exercise their fundamental freedoms to speak truth to power, to advocate for change because of a repressive political environment. So this is a clear situation where human rights concerns and climate change concerns go hand in hand. That was Marty Flax, director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. She talked to me from Washington. Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, has told lawmakers in parliament he's committed to a peace deal struck with Tigrayan leadership in South Africa earlier this month to end two years of deadly conflict in northern Tigray region. Fred Harter reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. In his address to parliament Tuesday, Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, said the warring parties must now ensure they follow through on the agreement. We have discussed, we have agreed, we have signed, said Abiy. What is expected next is to implement. Only implementation, he added, could make the peace sustainable. Under the terms of the November 2 ceasefire deal in Pretoria, Ethiopia's federal government will take control of the Tigray region's borders, roads and airports, while Tigrayan fighters will disarm. On November 12, military commanders representing Ethiopia's federal government and the Tigray region signed an agreement which included the disarmament of heavy weapons and the withdrawal of foreign and non-ENDF or federal military forces from the Tigray region. Disarmament is set to start on November 15, according to a copy seen by VOA. Abiy also stressed peace was necessary to repair the economy and maintain the existence, sovereignty and unity of Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous country with 120 million people. Peace is all the time good, he said. Even if you are winning, 
War is bad all the time because you are killing people, you are firing dollars. The Ethiopian Prime Minister was responding to questions from lawmakers. The ceasefire, signed in Pretoria, commits the federal government to ensuring unhindered aid access to Tigray, where the region's 6 million people need urgent food and medicine. Over the weekend, Ethiopia's federal government said basic services were slowly being restored to Tigray. Fred Hasser for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Cabinet ministers from around the world are negotiating an agreement at the COP27 summit on climate change this week in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. VOA correspondent Heather Murdoch is at the conference and she joins me now on the phone to update us on the discussions today. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. So negotiations for a summit agreement are underway. What's known about how the talks are going? The Egyptian leadership of this conference said today that they are on track to negotiate a deal uh, by the end of this week, but this deal is a Herculean effort. I mean, there are nearly 200 countries here from all over the globe with competing interests and competing needs. Um, So as you can imagine, getting all of these countries to agree on anything at all sounds quite difficult, and this is a particularly difficult conference to make a deal on because it's for the first time they are negotiating what they all agree to be morally correct for rich countries basically to pay for the suffering from climate change in poor countries. Um, this this idea is great and everybody thinks it's a good idea and it should happen except exactly who's going to pay, how they're going to pay, who's accountable, how to make them accountable and where the money goes is incredibly difficult to to hammer out in two weeks or in two months. It's, it's quite a huge challenge. There has been some talk uh, that the negotiations might stretch into the weekend. What are you hearing about that? I have heard that. I mean, it, it's true that to make a deal of this size that's comprehensive and useful and can be implemented is a huge task. Um, I would, if, if, if it works uh, works out and it's a strong deal is made and it... Uh, Heather Murdoch, uh, uh, reporting from Sharm al-Sheikh. Uh, we seem to have missed... Okay, so... Uh... We'll go to the next topic. Chinese President Xi Jinping says he supports more collaborative relations with Africa. Reuters News report Xi told Senegalese President Macky Sall that he will work to strengthen cooperation with the continent by building a China-Africa community with a shared future. The two met on the sidelines on the G20 summit on the Indonesian island of Bali. Xi also said he will continue to support strengthening Senegal's infrastructure. Saal is attending the gathering of leading economies as the president of the African Union as well as the leader of Senegal. One of his goals at the summit is to push for the AU to be admitted as a member of the group. China is a partner and co-chair of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, a group that emphasizes economic, social, and political ties between Beijing and the continent. In the U.S., Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies says China provides over $4 billion in foreign direct investment to the continent each year. Chinese officials say trade with Africa amounted to over $254 million last year.
You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note, we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There, you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. In Uganda, health officials say an Ebola case has been confirmed in Jinja, in eastern Uganda, the first time the outbreak has spread to a new part of the country from central Uganda, where cases had been confined up to now. Jason Rizzo is the Doctors Without Borders coordinator for MSF's Ebola response in Uganda. He says as of November 11th, there are at least 139 confirmed Ebola cases, 55 deaths, and 69 recoveries in Uganda. MSF is working with the Ministry of Health to try to contain the spread of the disease. Rizzo tells VOA's Carol Van Dam there has been a bit of good news recently on efforts to contain the outbreak. There have been some positive developments over the last few weeks, uh, notably in the sense that there are two districts that have not reported any new, new cases over the past several weeks, and as well the number of new cases being reported on a daily basis throughout the country has kind of averaged around one to two for the last week, week and a half. So on that side of things, we are enthusiastic. We hope that that situation will continue. But we also know that from past outbreaks that you can have low case numbers and then they spike again. And the other thing to be mindful of and that we are alarmed by is that the outbreak has recently spread to two new districts. Uh, That is Masaka and Jinja. And these are um, cases that were reported in those districts, but were originating from Kampala. So Kampala is obviously a large concern for us as well in the sense that it's a larger center. People are moving around, densely populated. And so the risk uh, of active transmission in Kampala, as well as these two new districts, is present and, and is quite alarming. You're working hand-in-hand with the Ministry of uh, Health, I would imagine. How are you getting the word out to people? So it's really about having a meaningful dialogue with communities, with community leaders, with churches, with markets, with uh, religious groups, with focus group discussions. The, the idea is not really to just put posters up, show up for half an hour and then disappear, but it's really to go back time and time again on a daily basis to understand what the community is thinking and saying about Ebola to try to address some of their concerns and integrate that into the overall uh, response. And so that's something that we are trying to to really scale up, particularly, like I said, in Kampala, uh, to ensure that people are aware and as well that they know that this is really a life or death matter in the sense that we know that the sooner patients are admitted to a treatment center, the better their chances of our of survival are. How has the reception been? Do people seem to be more willing to come in when they think they might have symptoms, or are they still worried about what the ramifications are going to be? Some people do present early, but I think uh, the, the large majority are not presenting soon enough. And then that makes our job as doctors very difficult to try to save them. The issue is not necessarily that they are fearful it is more that they need to be informed about what Ebola is, that it is present in Uganda, 
and that there is a process to follow that can help them in the sense that they can, you know, if they are aware that it exists and if they are aware that there are mechanisms that they can go to for support, you know, that, that also means then that you have to work through the, the healthcare system. And that goes across the board from all the way from hospitals to health clinics to private facilities to pharmacies to traditional healers. That's Jason Rizzo, MSF's coordinator in Uganda for the medical humanitarian organization's Ebola response. He was speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam from Kampala, Uganda. A team from the Commonwealth is in Zimbabwe to assess the country's readiness to return to the political and economic bloc of mostly former British colonies. Former President Robert Mugabe withdrew Zimbabwe from the Commonwealth in 2003. The group previously had suspended the country's membership because of human rights violations committed by the ZANU-PF government. Now, the man who replaced Mugabe after a coup in 2017, Emerson Manangagwa, wants Zimbabwe back in the fold. Darren Taylor reports. Members of the Commonwealth enjoy advantages such as access to preferential trade agreements with and development funding from the United Kingdom. On Zimbabwe State Television, Minister of Foreign Affairs Frederick Shava welcomed the Commonwealth delegation in Harare on Saturday. Since the last Commonwealth Assessment Mission in July 2019, government has made significant strides in the implementation of our reform agenda, as well as in meeting the five expectations that uh, are critical to our readmission into the Commonwealth. Those expectations include respect for human rights, allowing freedom of expression, and demonstrating rule of law. But opposition parties say ZANU-PF hasn't met the Commonwealth's requirements. We've gone back to the politics of Robert Mugabe, and possibly worse, where people are basically being killed, burnt in broad daylight for their political beliefs. But Triple C is Fazai Mahere is spokesperson for the Citizens Coalition for Change, the Triple C Party. There's almost no top leader of the Triple C who isn't facing some sort of dubious charge, who isn't being threatened, who's being violated in terms of their ability to move and conduct party work. The government released Triple C MP Godfrey Setole shortly before the arrival of the Commonwealth delegation. Mahere says he spent 150 days in jail for allegedly inciting public violence. No person should be incarcerated without trial for such a long period, especially in the country's maximum prison. It's not as though that group of persons was being held in the remand prison. Bail is a constitutional entitlement. Every citizen is presumed innocent until proven guilty. So there was no reason why Honorable Godfrey Sitole, together with Job Sikala, and 15 other members who were incarcerated should be in prison for that long. Sitole... Triple C Vice Chairperson Job Sikala and others were detained in June after protests that followed the killing of party activist More Blessing Ali. The coalition and others allege ZANU-PF agents killed him. Mahere doesn't see Zimbabwe returning to the Commonwealth in the near future.
we are a far cry as a country from implementing the sort of political reforms and economic reforms that are necessary uh, to reintegrate us into the community of nations. The fact that violence is perpetrated throughout the length and breadth of Zimbabwe against political opponents, women are beaten and are stripped. Uh, the fact that more blessing Ali was murdered in cold blood by a ZANU-PF member. The fact that Mboneni Nube was murdered in cold blood just this year for attending a triple C rally. All of that paints a very clear picture about the failure by Mr. Mnangagwa to reform. And when we say reforms, we're not... ZANU-PF denies persecuting opponents or committing abuses, and the police have said they're investigating cases of alleged violence. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The North African country of Tunisia is no stranger to World Cup games, having competed in five previous ones and even won one in 1978. The Carthage Eagles, as the national team is called, hope to reclaim that glory in the Qatar World Cup. Adi Akram has more. The Tunisian football entered the last preparatory camp for the World Cup in Dunham, Saudi Arabia, with the last preparatory friendly match against Iran scheduled for November 16th in Qatar. Tunisian football player Safadine Jaziri says he is hopeful for a successful match. Our target is to go as far as we can and make Tunisians happy. Another football player from Tunisia, Halayan Halali, who has played in the World Cup matches before, says he hopes the team will advance to the second round. It's the second World Cup in a row for me. We should keep and work on the good things we did in Russia, World Cup 2018. Our target is to qualify to the second round. Tunisia plays in Group D in the first round of 2022 World Cup along with France, Denmark and Australia. The Carthage Eagles will play against the Danish national team on November 22, 2022 before they meet the Australian team on the 26th of the same month and the 2018 world champion France on the 30th of November. The team's national coach, Jalil Qadar, says the Carthage Eagles will do whatever it takes to make the country proud. I want to tell Tunisians that we share the same hopes and dreams. We trust the group and we can do what makes Tunisians happy. For player Amin Balouli, support for everyone is the key to the team's success. I hope everyone stands by outside and supports the national team in the World Cup and forget the negative points. For Voice of America, this is Adil Akram in Washington. A spokesperson for the army in the Democratic Republic of Congo says fighting is picking up between the government forces and M23 rebels. According to Reuters News, Guillaume Injiki says fighting has broken out in several villages near Goma in North Kivu province, including Kibumba, Rugari and Tongo. Witnesses in Tongo and Kibumba told Reuters that people were fleeing in large numbers. The wire service says hundreds have fled to the village of Kibati, about 50 kilometers away from Goma. Three camps for internally displaced people have been set up in the village. At least 188,000 people have been displaced in North Kivu since October 20th. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiya Suhib in Washington. 
for all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barro, and our engineer, Joe Gill, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station.